Would you grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 26? We're journeying through this series called The Gospel of the Cross, and it's this step-by-step journey through Matthew's beautiful account of Jesus in a horrifying way walking to the cross. Can that beautiful and horrifying thing be held together? Matthew would say yes. Um, Matthew, as an a, uh, impeccable storyteller under the inspiration of the Spirit, is laying out this story for us. And he's doing it so far through a series of contrasts. So if you're with us a couple weeks ago, he contrasted worship through two images. The image of an unnamed woman worshiping Jesus with expensive perfume and Judas who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Last week it was a picture of the will. We saw the weak and frail will of the disciples contrasted with the the very human, raw humanity of Jesus that emerged with a strong will, even in the midst of depression and anxiety and pain. Jesus emerged with strength. And today we're going to look at another contrast. Matthew's continuing to contrast pictures, this time of two trials. A trial that will take place in the house of the high priest, and a trial that will take place in the corner of the courtyard near a fire. And in both instances, Jesus will be on trial. And we're going to dig into what that means for us. Uh, Some of you know I did youth ministry through the early 2000s, and that was in the period of time where uh, maybe you've actually received this challenge as well, but there, there was this thing that happened almost every Saturday night at a youth retreat. Um, so the youth would come and everybody would be fired up and the, the Friday message would be up and fun and be really happy. And then Saturday morning would be uh, the, the one where the preacher would try to do all the stuff that he knew everybody was going to sleep through because they were going to sleep through it anyway, one way or another, it didn't really matter. And so he would just do all the boring stuff on Saturday morning. And then Saturday night, everybody would be like doing all kinds of crazy stuff all day and, and the speaker would be speaking and then somewhere in the speaking, it would have happened almost every retreat, the speaker would, would say something like this, just imagine if you were in a courtroom and a lawyer stood up and said, your honor, she's being accused of being a Christian. He's being accused of being a Christian. And imagine if the defense attorney stood up and said, objection, your honor, where's the evidence? Would there be evidence to convict? And, and all the middle schoolers would be like, you know, like, I'm not sure I want to talk. And, and all the high schoolers would be like, I pretend like I didn't hear that. Except for like 20 that were on the edge of their seats like, yes, there would be evidence. I would make sure there's evidence, right? That, that was the way, way we talked about it back in the early 2000s. Is there evidence to convict? Well, Matthew's going to turn the tables on us. He's going to ask this question. Jesus is accused of being the Messiah, Is there evidence to convict? Is there enough evidence to see Jesus as the Messiah? Last week we ended with Jesus just outside the garden being arrested. And he's taken away. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. So if you want to join me, we're going to start reading in verse 57 and go through the end of the chapter in verse 75. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came up to him and said, you were also, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we look at this retelling and we remember the weight of this journey, would you, by your grace, open our ears and our hearts and our spirits to what you're speaking to us through your spirit, through your servant Matthew, and God, now through my words that they would come from you alone. May the words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may the words that come from your spirit remain. Convict, challenge, shape, mold, and transform us. We pray with the Apostle Paul, beholding the glory of Christ, may we be transformed increasingly into his image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is on trial. Can he be convicted as the Messiah, or maybe better asked, who is this man? Is he a man? Is he God? Is he somehow God and man both? If he's man, what he said is clearly blasphemy, and under the laws of Israel, he deserves death. If he's God... What's about to happen will literally split history in two. And the story that we're reading is the most important document in the world. Who is this man? Matthew says this, verse 58. Peter was following him 
at a distance. Now, you may have just read over that. I know the first couple of times I've read this, I read right over it. But I, I believe that Matthew is actually intentionally putting that in there for us to understand the rest of what is about to unfold. Peter was following him at a distance. There's a, an invitation for us to consider where we fit in this trial, how we're following him. Stanley Harawas, in his commentary on Matthew, says this, following at a distance is a wonderful description for the way most of us follow Jesus. We want, as Peter wanted, to see how all this will end before we commit ourselves. Anybody? Right, we stand back and we're a bit half-hearted because we want to see how all this is going to go first. We, we don't want to commit early on. We want to wait a little bit. We want to see what's going to happen. And, and that's Peter. He's, he's hanging back. He wants to see what's going to happen. So I believe Matthew is inviting us into three different ways of looking at following. First, to refuse to follow. Secondly, like Peter, to follow at a distance. And then I believe he embeds in this text for us what it means to follow closely. Refusing to follow, following at a distance, and following closely. So we start in the courtroom, the courtyard of the high priest, and then going into the home of the high priest or into his open courtyard. And, and this trial begins to unfold. And, and Matthew makes it really clear for us that they're looking to convict, right? So um, in verse 59, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, right? They're, they're looking for the lies. They have already determined. They, this, is a, this is a mock trial. They have already determined the outcome. They know there, there's not an honest seeking after truth here. There's an intent to convict. And so they're looking for people who can, who, who can swear to something, right? And, and Matthew says they couldn't even get their story straight. Like everybody's saying all this different stuff and none of it came together. In Jewish law, you had to have two people agree in testimony to uh, be admissible in court. And so they're trying to find two people who will agree. And finally they find two people who affirm that Jesus said, actually it's a quote from uh, John chapter 2, Jesus said that I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Now it's great irony to me that it's actually Jesus speaking of his death and his resurrection that becomes the evidence that leads him to his death. I mean, how, how fascinating is that? It's Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry predicting the fact that he's going to be killed and going to rise again. That becomes the evidence that leads him into his death. So finally, the, the two of them agree, and, and Caiaphas steps forward, and he says, so what do you say? What, what, do you, what do you say to this? And Matthew tells us that Jesus is quiet. This is now a reference back to Isaiah 53 again. If you remember, you were with us a couple weeks ago. Matthew started this story by intentionally referencing Isaiah chapter 53, the, the suffering servant passage of Isaiah. And, and now he's going to do it again. In, in verse 7 of Isaiah 53, it says, Like a lamb led before his shearers is silent, so will he be silent. The, the chief priest says, tell us. Jesus says nothing and so the chief priest now calls a, a, an oath out of Jesus. Uh, it's fascinating because these are the oaths. Uh, the, the way that he says it in our uh, English translation is in verse 63, I adjure you by the living God. This is the exact thing that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, don't do. Jesus said, 
Don't, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear by things. But with the oath, the chief priest calls it out of him. Tell us. Tell us. So you have this confrontation. The chief priest of God standing face to face with the Messiah of God. And there's this showdown that begins to happen. I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says to him, you have said so. Now, wasn't Jesus the one that said, let your yes be yes and your no be no? Like, yeah, no, well, like, where, where yet? Almost all commentators agree that Jesus is saying, the, the title you're using is right, what you mean by it is wrong. You have said so. You used the right words. What's happening here is that Caiaphas and Jesus in this confrontation are, are in this massive misunderstanding of theology. They're using the same words and they're trying to engage one another, but they're, they're missing each other in the process. Caiaphas would say, the real Messiah, the real Messiah is going to step forward and fight for the Jewish people. The real Messiah is strong, and the real Messiah could never be killed. And Jesus is saying, the real Messiah is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The real Messiah is not a nationalist. The real Messiah is here to die on behalf of everyone. And so they come face to face with one another. Caiaphas using the same language as Jesus, but meaning two completely different things. Bruner makes this statement as this uh, unfolds. He says this, at, As at this meeting, so in all future meetings of the people of God, the decision for or against Jesus' deity will determine the church's decision for or against her own vitality. Now get, get that in your head, because what Bruner is saying is, as, the, 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 as Jesus is brought to trial and a decision is made, who is this man? Is he who he says he is? The, a decision is about to be made as to whether this group of people will have life or have death. And the same thing happens every week and every day with followers of Jesus at churches all around the world. A decision is made. When we say Jesus is Lord, what do we mean? Do we mean that he's a great moral teacher that's worthy of emulating? Or do we mean that he's Lord of all things and in charge of my life? Those are two dramatically different, same words, two dramatically different things. Caiaphas and Jesus, the high priest and the Messiah, are in this standoff using the same words, meaning totally different things trying to figure out a way forward. Think about those who refuse to follow Jesus. When Jesus is put in front of us, there are words that you hear. Words like grace and sin and justice and redemption. Words that mean different things to different people. People who refuse to follow Jesus use those same words as the people who choose to follow Jesus. Let me, let me tell you a story. Um, it was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so now, I was sitting with a young lady in a coffee shop, and we were having a conversation about following Jesus. And she was in a relationship that she knew was not God's best for her. 
it was exceedingly clear to both of us that it was not God's best for her. And we were talking about the love of God, the invitation of Jesus, what Jesus was inviting her and us all into. And we used words like grace and redemption and justice and goodness. And it was fascinating because as we talked, tears started to well up in her eyes and and she used the same words that I was using invitationally to refuse. God's not loving. The justice of God I can't handle. She saw the, the love of God as divine rules, and she saw the justice of God as vengeance against her because she was unwilling to follow. And in the same way, I'm using the same words to hear a totally different message. There's redemption that's offered. There's a God who has taken the justice for you. The, The vengefulness of the Father has been poured out on the Son so that you can have life. You're invited in. We're using the same words, but we're meaning totally different things. Caiaphas and Jesus, face to face, both understand Christ, Son of the living God, but they understand it to be two totally different things. Jesus standing as the suffering servant, Caiaphas sending him to a Roman court with the recommendation of death. We're going to get into that next week. And then the scene cuts. Matthew takes us from there back to Peter. Remember Peter following at a distance, right? So he's not in the court area. He's all the way kind of out of the corner. I picture him kind of by a wall or a fence or something. And there, there are people all around. And, and he's, he's following Jesus at a distance, a bit half-hearted, not quite all the way in. He's, he's wrestling. He's, um, I, I would say this. Peter is in his own strength trying to figure out what to do now. Peter is uh, in control and therefore is at best, a compromised disciple because he's in control. Jesus is over there. He has no idea what's going on. What's following at a distance look like? If we take that metaphor, what's it look like to follow at a distance? Watchman Nee in his book, The Normal Christian Life, makes, I, I think, a profound statement about that. He says this, we cannot expect a tailor to make us a coat if we do not give him any cloth nor a builder to build us a house if we let him have no building material. And in just the same way, we cannot expect the Lord to live out his life in us if we do not give him our lives in which to live. To, say there is, to, to stay there sorry, is to be no more than just a broken vessel, no good for the world because you've gone too far for the world to use you, and no good for God either because you've not gone far enough for him to use you. That's following at a distance. Halfway in, halfway out. Expecting Jesus to work without giving him any materials to work with. Peter is standing back, waiting to see what's going to happen. No longer any good to the world because he's committed to Jesus. But not able to be used by Jesus because he's only halfway committed. He's only halfway there. Half-hearted following We want to follow Jesus, but we really want to be seen as in control, even cool, even though we're not in middle school anymore. Some of us are. Most of us aren't. 
But we still want to be cool. We still want to be seen respectfully by the people around us. We, we want to become more like Jesus, but we also want to be a little lazy, rest, comfortable, right? We want to be passionate as we pursue Jesus, but we don't, ever, don't want everybody to know about it. Like, can we be passionate quietly, right? Half-hearted in a pursuit of Jesus, following at a distance. And so for Peter, it looks like this. He's in the courtyard, and this servant girl comes to him and says, aren't you with him? No, absolutely not. Another servant girl comes by, aren't you with him? And now, using an oath, interestingly, the same word that Jesus said don't do, and now Jesus was just called to do by the high priest, using an oath, says absolutely not. And then a group of people gather around and says, you must be with him, your accent, oh, you, you sound just like him, you must be with him. And he, he calls down a curse. Now, in your translation, it says he began to invoke a curse on himself. That phrase on himself isn't in the Greek, so we don't actually know what he's cursing. He may have been cursing himself. He may have been cursing at them. He may have been cursing Jesus himself. We, we have no idea. But calling down a curse, he says, absolutely not. I was not with him. Peter's still following at a distance. And we tend to see that sin of Peter as dramatically different than the rest of the sin that's unfolding. Like if you were going to level Judas and Caiaphas and Peter, most of us would put Peter well above Judas and Caiaphas. But I'd like to make the case that Peter is actually doing the same thing. Why did Peter deny Jesus? At the core, what is it that's happening? I think if you're going to summarize it, you would say, Peter doesn't know who Jesus really is. He doesn't really believe who he is. Now, he's been with him for years. He's the one, ironically, that said, Matthew chapter 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He, he is the one of any of them. He's the one who knows the identity of Christ, right? But now, the Christ, the Son of the living God, is on trial. He's weak. And it looks like he's not only out of control, but he's on his way to the cross. Peter, like Caiaphas, has no category for a crucified Messiah. He denies Jesus for the same reason Caiaphas convicts Jesus, for the same reason Judas betrays Jesus. Because this is not what a Messiah is supposed to look like. And the question is, what about us? How often do we put ourselves in the same boat? If we fundamentally misunderstand who Jesus is, we will also follow at a distance. For instance, if I believe that following Jesus is going to make my life better and making my life worse, I tend to draw back. If I believe that Jesus is in control of all things because he said all authority in heaven and on earth is his, and I look around and it seems like Jesus is completely out of control, then I follow at a distance. 
Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, and yet I feel so alone. So I follow at a distance. That's all Peter's doing. Because he doesn't understand, doesn't believe, doesn't trust who Jesus is, he follows at a distance. And many of us do the same thing. And that seems like it's the end of the story, but Matthew gives us a a phrase. And it's a phrase that I believe is so full of hope. So look at the very last sentence of Matthew chapter 26. And he went out and wept bitterly. That doesn't seem like good news on the surface, right? He went out and wept bitterly. I I want you to step back and picture what's going on here. There are only bad guys in this story. Caiaphas is bad. Peter's bad. All the rest of the disciples seem to have disappeared. They're bad. Judas is, uh, we're going to meet him next week again. He's, he's in real bad shape. Like, everybody's bad. There's one hero, and the hero is about to be condemned to death. There's one good guy. All the rest are equally bad guys. And Peter, after that third denial, gets it. He looks around. And he sees Caiaphas, and he sees the Jewish leaders, and he sees the crowd. He sees all that's happening, and he weeps because he knows that he has betrayed him. He's denied him. He knows that he's been following at a distance, and it's not until that last denial that he draws close. I believe that tears are almost always the sign of us following closely. Do you know why? Because there's only one good guy in our story too. And until we recognize that, we're always going to follow at a distance. Unless you and I get that we're part of that crowd We could have just as easily been up on the step with Caiaphas. We could have very easily been out at the fire and been Peter. Until we recognize that there are only bad guys, we don't follow closely. And when we do, outwardly or inwardly, we weep bitterly. We recognize that we're broken, that we're in need of grace. And it's in that moment that I believe that Peter, although he's going to disappear from Matthew's account until the very end, and even at the end, he's only going to be named as among the disciples. But I believe at that moment, Peter got it. And the reason I think that is if you, you don't need to turn here, but let me just read for you. Several decades later, Peter is writing to people who are followers of Jesus who are being persecuted in incredibly awful ways, who are facing uh, danger at every corner, that would be very tempted to follow him at a distance. Listen to what he says. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, 
So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see it, Peter uh, in the, faced with the potential of following at a distance, says, oh, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. Draw close. Uh, allow that close following of Jesus to produce fruit in you. And what's he say it's going to produce? I think you can summarize First Peter uh, down to joy and mission. That, that joy is going to overflow out of those who follow Jesus close, closely, and mission will be the natural outflow. But the only way that it happens is by way of the cross. That's what Peter learned. That the Messiah has to go through the cross to have life. And if I'm to follow him, the same thing's true for me. Do you know it's right after Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, that Jesus says, if any man wants to follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. For far too many of us, we want joy and mission without the cross. We want the joy of the Christian life. I want fullness and abundance. I just don't want to have to suffer. I don't want to have to give anything up. I don't want to do the heavy work of discipleship. I just want joy. I just want to jump into the work of God. I want to be used by God, but I want to bypass the cross. That was what happened with my friend across the table in the coffee shop. She, she wanted joy. She wanted mission, but she didn't want the cross. And for too many of us, we jump there, and it's like trying to run a marathon without training. We, it doesn't work. You, you have to go by way of the cross to receive the joy and the mission that come from the cross. Think about it in your head right now. Think about everybody you know that has ever actually run a marathon. Now just imagine in your head the people who have actually run a, run a marathon. They've actually done it. Whoever you just thought of, those are the only people you know that have run a marathon. Do you know how I know that? Because the other ones would have told you if they did. That's the way it works. Because if you run, and look, I get it. If I had ever run a marathon, I'd talk about that way more than i talk about eating ice cream. You notice I talk about eating ice cream a lot more than that, right? Because I'd never run a marathon. But if you do it, of course you tell people. Do you know why? Because it's awful. It's hard. Like the training and the work and the, the depth of commitment that it takes. And when you finish it, there's this joy that overflows out of you because you're like, whoa, I did that. And then all of a sudden you want to tell people about it, right? Following Jesus by way of the cross is exactly supposed to be like that. Like when, when we suffer with him and receive the life from him, there should be an overflow coming out of us that says, I, I've been with him. And yeah, was it hard? Yeah, it was hard. Of course it was hard. But it was so worth it. It was so good because on the other side, there was all of this joy, all of this beauty, and, and I want you to know about it. I want you to hear about it. Joy and mission are always the byproducts of following Jesus closely. So let me circle around to where we began. How are you following? Refusing? Following at a distance? Or following closely? And if you would say following closely, I'll ask the question that was at every youth retreat that I went to for the first five years of ministry. 
What's the evidence? Is the evidence there? And if you would say, oh man, <laughs> kind of a mixed bag, right? I, sometimes. Sometimes I'm really close. Sometimes I'm at a distance. Probably sometimes I'm refusing. What do I do with that? Well, that's the beautiful invitation of Jesus. Peter and Caiaphas are separated only by their tears. They both denied who Jesus was. Next week, we're going to look at Judas, who repented, but he repented the wrong direction to the wrong people. We'll talk about that next week. Peter is identified not by his righteousness, but by his repentance. And so when we regularly come back to the communion table, we come back not as perfect people, but as mixed bag people. Like if you're here and you say, man, as you describe that, I think I'm following at a distance an awful lot. Welcome to the club. And you know what's beautiful? We get to come into the table that Jesus said signified the very death that was, that was going to be the end of him and life for us. The, 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 the finality of God dying and life for all of us to receive out of that death. And we're going to come and we're going to say, I'm not following very well. And he's going to say, I know. And I love you. And I died for you. So come and receive. And so I want to invite you to come to the table, not as perfect people, but as people who have probably followed a bit at a distance this week. Maybe even refused at times. And people who would say, I feel like I'm drawing close, but man, it's not for very long and there's not a whole lot of fruit. Those are the kind of people that come to the table. And we come and we receive the broken bread of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, poured out over our life to forgive us and to change us. The cross is not just about our forgiveness, but it's also about our transformation. We eat the bread and we drink the cup and it becomes Jesus in a mystical, beautiful way begins this process of transformation from the inside out. And so we're invited to come. And so I'm going to invite those of you who are serving to go to one side or the other, and I'm going to invite you in just a minute to come and to receive. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited. Uh, whether you find yourself tonight holding back, following at a distance, or trying to be as close as you can, you're invited. You're invited not because of how well you're doing, but because of the perfection of Jesus himself. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I would simply ask that you don't go to the table. And the reason isn't because uh, you don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. But the, the reason is that what we're doing isn't just a ceremony. It's actually part of the covenant love of Jesus. It's the agreement that we make, the promise that he's made to us, that, that he would give us life and that we're going to follow after him. And so if you're not there yet, I would just simply ask that you watch what's happening. There'll be some prayers that'll be on the screen, and those may be helpful to you as you process your heart. You're free to use those. The third thing I want to say is if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, but you know 
that there's an area of your life and you've just said, I'm not following you here. I'm going to follow you everywhere else maybe, but I'm not following you here. This is a, a meal, a, a, a symbol that reminds us of the completeness of Jesus as Lord. And so if you're coming and you're saying, I don't intend that he would be Lord over here. Not that I'm not very good at it, but I don't intend that he would be Lord in this area. I would ask you to take time to process that before him. To come and to pray, to journal. Maybe you need to make a phone call. Maybe you need to start to do something about that. Because the, the, the call of Jesus is that we would follow him completely. Everyone who would follow me would take up his cross daily and follow me. And so if that's where you are, I would just simply ask that you also refrain from the, the meal. But if you're simply coming and you're saying, I'm following imperfectly at best, join us all as we all imperfectly follow him. And so I'll invite you to come as you're ready. I'm going to pray over us. And then as Scott leads us, we'll have an opportunity just to come to the table to receive and then to respond to him in worship. Jesus, I, I thank you. I thank you for love that is overwhelming and hard to even get our head around. You love us even when we, fall, when we hang back, when we are so unsettled in our following of you. And yet you invite us back with tears and a recognition that you alone are worth following. And so Jesus, would you now meet us at the table Give us the grace of examining our lives, recognizing how we're following, and the grace that we are so desperately in need of, and the grace upon grace upon grace that you offer to us. And so, God, we come, we receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.